Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Foundation and the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest, uh, David Getoff. He's a board-certified traditional naturopath. He's also a board-certified clinical nutritionist, a fellow of the American Association of Integrative Medicine, and an elected member of both the American College of Nutrition and the International College of Integrative Medicine, and a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, and probably on and on and on, many credentials. So uh, I'll have him go over his bio a bit more because he's better at it. So David, thanks for coming back. Ah, my pleasure to be here. Actually, the, the newest one is uh, I got uh, certified as a metabolic health practitioner by the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners about uh, two months ago. That's a group that goes over specific diets that are uh, basically low-carb, uh, high good fat, high protein. And uh, I'm always also proud of the fact that for about 16 or 17 years, I've been the vice president of the 69-year-old Price Pottinger Nutrition Foundation uh, here in San Diego. But yeah, I mean, that's... Okay. I wanted to talk to you today because... I'm putting together a book on cancer. As I mentioned before, we did one on viruses and now cancer. So I want to ask you questions surrounding that. That's all right. Absolutely. Go right ahead. Do you think or perceive that cancer is essentially its own separate life form that's inside of us? Or is it simply a part of us that is uh, acting differently or wrong or kind of out of context with uh, the rest of the body? I think the, uh, the the research is pretty clear on that. I think that's one of the very few things having to do with medicine that there isn't disagreement on, that uh, a cancerous cell is one of our own cells that has gone rogue because um, almost all of our cells, with very few exceptions, like uh, certain cells in the heart, uh, almost all of our cells are supposed to die off uh, and be replaced by new cells. And when a cell goes rogue and becomes cancerous, becomes malignant, it uh, can live and live and live and not die off. And uh, the a normal cell death, um, depending on who's pronouncing it, apoptosis or apoptosis, uh, no longer applies to it. 
and it grows and duplicates. And if we get enough, enough millions and millions of those uh, rogue cells, then it actually needs its own blood supply and becomes what's called a tumor and can kill people. But uh, no, I, I don't believe it's a, a different entity. I don't believe that it's a, a virus or a fungus or a bacteria. It is one of our cells that has gone rogue. And the reasons for it to have gone rogue, uh, which we may be discussing, uh, are, uh, they're not endless, but there are quite a few different ones having to do with diet, nutrition, environment, pesticides, other chemicals, and maybe we'll go into that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that shortly. If I think of my liver and the cells of my liver, do they, they I guess they seem to, quote unquote, like know their place. They have their identity as, you know, liver cells and engage in certain liver functions. And then heart cells, you know, have their own identity as heart cells. Do you think cancer cells have their own identity as this, this other you know, when they form a tumor, do they all act in concert to help that tumor to grow and proliferate? Or are they still, you think, acting selfishly and just on their own, even when they're, you know, billions of them together in a tumor, let's say? That's a very interesting question. Nobody's ever asked me that. Do they act in concert when they've grown so many that they're, they're now a tumor? You know, I'm not sure how we would make that decision. I, I guess I would have to, uh, if I was just guessing, which is what I'm doing, uh, what is it? They call it SWAG, Scientific Wild Ass Gas. Uh, that since they are growing in one place, although they, of course, can you know, get out and metastasize, that they are probably, to some extent, acting in concert with one another to do whatever it is that they are doing, which is you know, growing and growing and growing. And it's very peculiar because a parasite doesn't want to kill its host because if it kills its host, it dies. Uh, a mosquito doesn't want to kill its host because if it kills its host, it wouldn't have any more blood to drink. You know, if we had real, real vampires, which I don't think we'll ever have, again, they wouldn't want to kill their host because they would kill what their food is. Uh, but the cancer will kill its host, which is uh, pretty stupid, you know, but uh, I don't think it has an intelligence. But yes, I, I, I believe that they're probably acting in context with one another, but I couldn't prove that. What about um, if you look at a primary tumor and the constituent metastases, do you think there's communication and or orchestration of activity from the primary? Is it the, the brain of the operation? Or, you know, again, is there just a distributed communication between, you know, uh, tumor sites? Uh, personally, I do not think there's any communication. Uh, I, I would uh, uh, look at it more like mold in a cheese. You might have a large hunk of cheese and you'll see mold start to develop in one area. And then two or three days later, you'll see mold in another area, maybe two or three inches away. If it's a large wheel of cheese, maybe 10 or 15 inches away, then you'll see some more mold uh, develop maybe 10 inches from that. Uh, if you take the mold under a microscope and uh, do various different types of analytics on it, you'll find that they may all be the same type of mold, but there isn't even a circulatory system for the cheese. It's got no lymphatics, it's got no blood, and I don't think there's any communication with that any more than I believe there's communication with different tumors in the body. And when, they, when they say primary tumor, you know, they're not claiming that it's the tumor, for example, that controls the other tumors. They're just claiming that it's the tumor that was the first tumor that began and it's fascinating that in the last uh, 20 years or so, probably maybe the last 10 years, they've always said that there's never more than one primary tumor, which is why it gets the name primary tumor. It is the primary tumor. Uh, but now that we have uh, uh, women that will carry their cell phones in their brassiere and that there's more than one hotspot in the phone as far as transmission, we now have numerous cases of women that they have found to have multiple 
primary tumors, and they'd never heard of that before in the history of cancer until it started being caused by cell phones. But of course, the public doesn't even know this. Well, why does it appear that cancer has tropisms for, for, for uh, certain meta- metastatic sites? It just, you know, when I looked up, uh, I don't know, the top 20 cancers, it seems like, again, this one spreads more to bone and brain. This one spreads more to liver. It seems like they have tropisms. Why would that be? The question is whether or not the cancer has a tropism. You know, we have that with plants, uh, positive uh, geotropism, negative geotropism, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I believe that the place or places uh, that we get cancer is much more related to the cause of the cancer. So if somebody's cancer, if we were able to be able to determine this, of course, which they're not even looking for it, uh, they don't want the cause of the cancer, they just want to you know, nuke it or cut it out. But if we could actually get the cause of the cancer, so in this one particular person's cancer, it is caused by one or more pesticides and herbicides that they've been exposed to. And I would say that maybe you would find if you could uh, dissect their body uh, which nobody is doing, uh, and look for the concentrations of the particular uh, pesticide, herbicide, fungicide, uh, or whatever, solvent, you know, whatever the poison may be, that made those cells unable to do what they're supposed to do. Maybe the other two or three areas are other areas that, for some reason, that toxin got concentrated. Same thing with, uh, with EMFs. You know, it, it depends on where the various assault is occurring, And if it's occurring more in two or three areas, uh, I would not be at all surprised to find out that those were the areas that the metastases started in. So I don't know, just my comments. Why would there be like an epithelial to mesenchymal transition and then the opposite transition, you know, from tumors? And it seems like there's niche construction of metastatic sites. And all this seems to be agency from the current tumor burden material to form more tumors in other sites. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, the, the problem is that nobody is looking for causes. So, for, for example, until the Environmental Working Group did their uh, unbelievable studies in 2003 and 2008, I think, one was called the uh, Body Burden, the Pollution in People, the other was called Body Burden, the Pollution in Newborns. If you had told somebody that with the right equipment, you could analyze uh, fat cells in the body and find that every single one of us has between 60 and 150 different toxic cancer-causing, neurological disease-causing chemicals in our body, somebody would say, "Why in the, where in the hell would somebody get all those? That's ridiculous. Uh, but of course, now we know they're all there. The public doesn't know. The doctors don't know. It's not being taught in medical school. But we now know this. So there are so many possibilities that I think we're just grasping for straws of trying to see if we can figure out which is the most important possibility, when from my point of view, the most important thing that we need to do 
is, especially when we have the ability and the knowledge, uh, is to prevent those different conditions. Cancer is a great example that kill us and have a high mortality rate. And that means, you know, getting away from uh, all the pesticides and herbicides. And it means reducing our exposure to all sorts of toxic substances that are in our foods, in our shampoo, in our toothpaste, the, 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 the bleaches, uh, the ammonias that people are using to clean their houses. And they think that they're disinfecting their house. And what they do is they're destroying their bodies. People uh, never go in there. Their doctors never run analytics uh, on uh, all the different nutrients in our body. I mean, I run, I run something called the cardioion panel on a lot of patients, and we take a look at all their vitamins, all their minerals, the trace minerals, all their macro minerals, all their essential fatty acids, all their non-essential fatty acids, all their, you know, you name it. And we find all sorts of things that even though they thought they were eating well, are massively low and out of balance. And so all of the money and effort that is going to things that will never be able to reduce the death rate as much as prevention just drives me bananas. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I, I read recently that, uh, I don't know who put it out there, but they said, what, 50% of American men will get cancer in their lifetime and 33% of women? Is that what you've seen? I haven't looked at the specific stats because they keep on changing all the time. I mean, you know, right now, uh, uh, I think uh, something like 75% of Americans uh, will become diabetic, and that keeps on going up every couple of years because they're eating worse and worse and worse. Uh, but of course, our exposure to every single trigger that causes cancer, no matter which ones you want to target, none of them are decreasing. So of course, the number of people, the percentages of people that are going to get cancer in their lifetime is going to go up. Every 10 years, it's going to get higher. And if it gets, if the death rate of a specific type of cancer goes down, it's because maybe they've found that if they remove that particular cancer with surgery, and if it takes X number of years to usually form and that person's going to die of something else before then, then maybe they've made that one look like it's lower, but it really isn't. Yeah, that's, that's well, the numbers seem uh, incredibly frightening, and especially like the diabetes numbers you mentioned. Going back to cancer, so what do you think, how do you think it starts? I mean, you know, some of the theories are one cell randomly mutates and becomes cancerous, but uh, I guess I see it more as a, um, a forced adaptation that turns into a maladaptation over time. But how do you see cancer's beginning? How do you think it happens? Well, as far as I'm concerned, cancer is, uh, we've given a new type, you know, type three, type four, type five, type six, whatever diabetes, because we know, I mean, the Nobel Prize for Medicine was won by Otto Warburg, you know, decades ago, approving that the cancer cell is a sugar metabolic cell. So the cancer cell eats sugar. It loves sugar. Every time somebody has a piece of fruit, you know, or a dessert or some ice cream, and they've got cancer cells in their body, they're, they're feeding their cancer cells. And so I believe that it, it develops because because over time, the amount of, I call them sabotage foods, I got a trademark for it from our government, the amount of sabotage foods that people consume, uh, which is three categories, starch, sugar, and alcohol, continue to assault the pancreas's and liver's ability. Most people don't realize the liver has something to do also with regulating blood sugar, but they continue to assault the, body, uh, the body's ability to regulate blood sugar. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And since cancer cells love sugar, uh, it gets to the point the pancreas can no longer hold the blood sugar level. People start going toward you know, one person it's diabetes, uh, one person it's uh, you know, pancreatic cancer or pancreatitis, but it's also cancer in general anywhere in the body. And the weakest point might just be where their toxic load is highest. 
and all of a sudden that happens. Uh, and then that cell divides, and that cell divides, and that cell divides, and, and the body can't, uh, can't get at it, and the immune system isn't working anywhere near as well as it should be. So, I mean, there's so much as there's a book called Cancer is a Metabolic Disease. Don't remember the author offhand. It was a fabulous book and probably one of the most accurate ones out there because it's our metabolism. You know, we're taking a metabolism that was designed to get all of our energy predominantly from fats and some from animal proteins. And we're saying, no, we're not going to do that. Eh, you know, we'd rather eat all sorts of different carbohydrates and sugars and starches. And, and we switch our metabolism from a metabolism that would live a long, 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 long time to a metabolism that has so many problems that this person's going to get diabetes and that person's going to get cancer and uh, this person's going to, going to get uh, Alzheimer's, uh, which has actually been called type 3 diabetes. And I, I, I don't know that we're going to find one answer. I think the problem with medicine is trying to find the answer. And the answer is prevention. And what we're trying to do in prevention is not to stop one thing, because if there are 25 dozen different causes, we need to address them all. And so I think all of the effort that me or you or somebody else or more modern medicine, I don't know why the hell it's called modern, dark ages, is looking at. So for DNA, for example, that's the worst. They're, they're trying to find, and they, and they haven't been able to, they're trying to find the DNA that's going to make it somebody, okay, you, this, this gene is the reason you're getting cancer. But the first time they did that was with the breast cancer gene decades ago. So the first gene they identified for cancer was the breast cancer gene. And after identifying it so they could then look for it in people, the question was, okay, now that we know that this particular gene is what we're going to call the breast cancer gene, let's see what percentage of people that have breast cancer have that gene. Should be a damn lot of them. And they were a little bit freaked out when they knew what they were looking for in people with breast cancer. And they found, no, it was only like 10% because that's not what does it. It's epigenetics. It's all of our surroundings. It's what we eat. It's what we don't eat. It's what we're exposed to. And so all of these efforts that we're looking at, what causes it? What made this happen? No, 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 no. That's dozens and dozens of different things. And they all have to do with diet, lifestyle, and poisons. So what's, um, what are some protocols that you've used for people to prevent cancer? And what are some protocols you know, for people that have cancer you've used to help them get over it? Uh, very similar. It's just that I'm going to be more aggressive with the person that already has cancer because if somebody comes to me and they say, hey, lots of people in my family have died of cancer and I don't want to, I'm going to teach them all the things they need to do about different types of foods, what they should and shouldn't be eating, the differences between organic, you know, why they don't want to use standard toothpaste because of uh, all of the different chemicals in it, why they don't want to use standard uh, cosmetics. I mean, why, what they want to avoid, what they want to clean their houses with, uh, what additional supplements we need to bring in, what tests we can do to take a look at all those different things. So that's all prevention. Whereas if somebody already has cancer, I'm not going to say these are some of the things that you might want to change. I'm going to say if you don't change all of these things now, then the chances of your body being able to build itself up so the immune system gets to the point at which, if it were there before, you wouldn't have a cancer, are damn slow, are damn slim. So the, the things are still the same very few. They're not in any particular order because I don't really believe that one is more important than the other with the exception of food. If you keep eating the wrong foods, there's no way anybody is going to be able to get your immune system working well enough. So the first thing I go over with them is what I want their diet to be. And it may be totally different than five other holistic professionals told them because the others were wrong. And then we're going to start bringing in all the nutrients they're deficient in. And then we're going to start supporting specific organs 
really targeted. We're going to support their kidneys and their liver at a speed that we can do so, because if you support kidneys and liver too quickly on somebody that's as toxic as a cancer patient, they will feel worse while they're taking kidney and liver support because the kidney and liver support is trying to detoxify those organs faster than the body can handle. And we further overload their system. And they go, I can't take this. What are you, David, what are you talking about? You told this is good for me. And when I take this, I feel like crap. I feel like I didn't get sleep for a month. I go, you weren't listening. I told you to try this dose. I said, if you didn't feel any problem whatsoever, we're going to go up to this dose. Anytime you feel a problem, we back it off. If the first dose causes a problem, we go lower. If you have to put a drop in a glass of water and mix it up and take a sip, that's fine. All we have to do is go forward. So we have to support kidneys. We have to support liver. Those are the detox pathways. We have to bring adequate amounts of good quality water in. We have to get rid of things like chlorine and chloramines and fluoride, etc. One of the things that's the most difficult for people because <laughs> health is not convenient and people want convenience. And when I tell people that there's dozens and dozens, there's probably hundreds of published studies on the harm to your immune system's ability from wireless technologies. I mean, my, my house and my office, I have no Wi-Fi. I have no cordless phones. I don't use a cell phone. I own one. You know, I take it to conferences and turn it on to call home and then turn it back off again. But people go, I can't do that. I go, well, again, I'm going to teach you all the different things. We're going to support the kidneys and liver. We're going to straighten up your diet. We're going to make it organic. Uh, we're going to make sure all of your house cleaning things are non-toxic. We're going to make sure all the things that touch your body, whether it's shampoo or soap, are non-toxic. We're going to bring in the nutrients you're low in, which we can test for. We're going to uh, see which things are specifically immune supportive. I've got probably, I don't even know, 50 different products which support the immune system, nine different uh, immune-enhancing mushrooms, 15 different immune-enhancing herbs, all sorts of different things. And we're going to use, I use energetic testing to see which ones are best for that particular person. All of that stuff has to be done. And it has to be done both quickly and not too quickly, or we further overload the system. So what, knowing all that you know and seeing what you've seen, like what, uh, how often are you able to help someone, for instance, that has cancer to, can you help them get rid of it? Or do they end up with, let's say, some tumor burden, but they seem to be fine and totally healthy, but yet they still have some tumor in them? Like what, what tends to happen? Well, the, the range goes from uh, those people that came to me with uh, all the way up to stage four metastatic and that had watched, uh, there's a smaller, smaller number of people in this group, but that had watched friends or relatives that had cancer do exactly what their oncologist wanted. And they watched that as soon as they started doing that, okay, so they happened to diagnose, uh, why, why did you not feel too well? Uh, let's run some labs. Ooh, I don't like what those labs look like. You know, let's do a CT scan. Ooh, there are a couple of tumors there. Let's do a PET scan. Ooh, um, you know, let's do a biopsy, you know, which I don't personally happen to like because they spread cancer, although they won't admit it. Uh, and then they finally have cancer. And all these people tell me from the time they started treating them, because everything I just said is diagnostic, from the time they started treating them, okay, so we're talking about chemotherapy, surgery, and uh, radiation, uh, they went downhill so much faster and started feeling horrible so much faster, and they watched their friends die. That's not true of all of them. I mean, I know people that, that say, oh, no, no, my, my uh, mother, father, wife, whatever, you know, had surgery, had chemo or had radiation, and they're still with us, and the cancer seems to be gone. You know, it's only been three or four years. Hope it doesn't come back, and we'd like you to help us make it less likely to come back. But I have people that have said, we've watched them turn around so fast and feel so bad so fast 
that we decided if we ever got cancer, this is usually a husband and wife talking, if we ever got cancer, uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to do all the holistic stuff and see what we can do. And, you know, some of them find their way to my door. You know, they uh, might have watched the, uh, the documentary, Cancer is Curable Now, and I'm one of the 36 or so health practitioners in there, whatever, however they find me. And those are the ones that have decided they don't want chemo, they don't want radiation, their choice. I will never tell somebody not to do that. I don't have that right. But if they decide that, I will say, then we really have to do everything fast, everything hard, but not so fast that it's going to hurt you further. And I have you know, quite a number of people that came in with stage four metastatic cancer, and it's now five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years later, they're doing totally fine. The cancer's gone. Then I have other people that came to me, and they were told that they had you know, eight months to 12 months to live, and uh, they had done some chemo and some radiation, or maybe they're even doing some, and they want me to help protect their healthy cells. So the chemo and the radiation, that the doctors only want to kill the bad cells, but since we have hundreds of millions of more healthy cells than we do tumor cells, the, can- the cancer cells, yes, certainly they are being damaged and sometimes killed by the chemo and radiation, but they are killing more healthy cells than they are cancer cells. And they come to me because they were told that there are things that we can do, uh, liver support, kidney support, antioxidants, that will help to protect their healthy cells so they are not as damaged by the bad stuff. And I have many, many of those people, I've been in practice 29 years now, uh, many of those people who, and I I still treat their families since I know this, they'll, they'll come in for something and they'll say, yeah, you know, I mean, you gave us five extra years with my dad. They said, there's no way he's gonna make it 12 months and probably six months, and you gave it, you, you helped him stay with us another five years, feeling pretty darn good, and we all love you, and we keep to come to you. So I, I have everything from people where I've extended their life, I have no idea how much, because of course I don't have a crystal ball, to people where I've helped their bodies reverse the cancer. I never say I cured the cancer. Nobody can cure cancer but the cancer person's body itself, but that's what I'm supporting. So I've, I've run the entire gamut you know, from A to Z. Have there been uh, like, you know, some of your longest patients, you know, how long have they been uh, like, what, what are some of the most dire cases and the best results coupled? Like if you were to cherry pick the best that you've worked with, what happened? Of somebody with uh, uh, in New York, uh, which is what was, he was one of my father's patients. He had pancreatic cancer. They, uh, he was working with some oncologist in New York, and they gave him six or eight months to live. And my father, he was seeing my father because my father was, was a psychologist. And my father said, you know, my, my son works with cancer also from a nutritional standpoint, from a holistic standpoint. He said, I'll do anything. They're telling me I'm going to die in six months. And so he was not going to stop all the things that he was doing with the oncologist. And of course, I didn't tell him to stop. I said, you can do what you want. And he added in a whole bunch of stuff with me. And, you know, he lived another four or five years that he never would have had before. Uh, Obviously, I don't have a a crystal ball to prove he wouldn't have had that. But, you know, they were very clear. Uh, I have people that uh, had colon cancer many, many years ago that are still totally fine today and no problems whatsoever. My uh, my baby sister, half-sister, had thyroid cancer. And um, I was uh, treating her for quite a while and watching all that stuff happen. And uh, what ended up going on was she totally changed everything and the cancer stopped. All the tumor numbers that we were using uh, went away. (laughs) I see my milk delivery truck drive up. I forgot about him. And uh, uh, what ended up happening was the numbers that she was showing on tumor testing that we were getting done, a special test called the AMAS test. I'm not sure if they're going to make it or if they're going to go out of business because of the economy, but everything was showing that the cancer was dead, but the tumor was still there. You know, I mean, uh, she had a big tumor on her, on her neck. Uh, they don't just vanish. And she said, uh, I, I, can't, I can't have this here. It makes me too nervous. 
I said, it, it could take a, a year for the body to absorb the dead tissue. So she finally ended up having to go in. and She didn't have to. She wanted to. She went in and she had them uh, remove the tumor. And the oncologist said he's never seen anything like this before in his life. It was dead. So in the, in the people that you've helped, do a large percentage of them keep a tumor mass for a while and then it slowly degrades over time? Or like, what have you observed? Uh, that seems to be what happens. But of course, they're not going in for continual CAT scans because CAT scan, I mean, a, a, a CAT scan is between uh, 150 and uh, 300 chest x-rays worth of radiation. And therefore, it increases the risk dramatically of your getting cancer again later. Every CAT scan increases your, your, uh, your 10-year risk of getting a recurrence. So, you know, unless the tumor is someplace where they can see it with a sonogram or, or an MRI, and unless the uh, doctor is willing when the patient is no longer going to be doing their chemo radiation to run tests and build their insurance company, which is, you know, which is our, our big fiasco here. I mean, I have people that, that go, I can afford to die because my insurance company will pay for all the things that are going to kill me, but I can't afford to live because they don't pay for you. And, it, and I've had a, a number of you know, people that have said that over the 30 years I've been in practice, and it's, and it's, it's really, it's, it's, I mean, it's fraudulent, it's scary. It's, it's, it's our insurance company. You know, if somebody's old enough, I mean, I'm going to be 70, so I'm on Medicare. I've got a Medicare supplement, of course, in addition to that. But, you know, before that, you know, I had a five or $6,000 deductible. But it's, it's my insurance company, okay? So I'm paying them thousands of dollars a year, and yet they're not willing to put out a lesser amount of money for what I choose than it would cost for them to do what's called traditional treatment. And that's, I mean, that's nonsense. You know, it's, it's completely crazy. nonsense. Okay, so after someone goes into what would be clinically called remission, it, the insurance won't cover additional tests for them? Like, oh, what, what happens? Well, it, it depends. You know, it's, it's, it's completely up to the doctor that's treating them. And if the doctor that's treating them like most doctors, sadly, uh, is very close-minded, hates the fact that they haven't been willing to do all the things that they told the person to do. They'll kick them out of their practice. You know, they won't do what they want. You know, I mean, I, I would say maybe one out of 25 cancer patients that I've treated, maybe one out of every 25, they come in and they said, yeah, I, my doctor said, Am I, are you doing anything else? I said, yeah, I'm working with a, a nutrition specialist. And they said, oh, that's terrific. That's great. Yeah, that, that will really, really help you. Whereas most of the others go, I want to know exactly what you're taking. No, you don't take, no, don't, no, no, don't take that. No, don't take that. That's going to stop my stuff from working. And they're all wrong. So again, in your, in the people you work with, well, I guess they're not, I guess unless it's a visible or a felt tumor, you don't really know what, if, if their tumor burden or what's happening with the tumor, if it's going away or if they're just living with it by all you know, appearances, they seem healthy and they're fine. Right. If, if, if somebody isn't getting a repetitive uh, CAT scans or MRIs or something, uh, unless it's a, a surface tumor where you can see it, you don't know what's going on other than what you can see from blood tests. And if somebody's blood tests and the way they feel has been horrible and they're feeling better and better and better, and all of a sudden they feel totally normal, I know not all of a sudden, it's slow, and their doctor runs a bunch of labs and says, yeah, I've never seen this happen before. I mean, everything looks great. Uh, you know, we could, we, could, well, we could run a CT scan, and then it's up to the patient. You know, the patient will call me up, my patient and, and the oncologist patient will call me up or come in for their appointment and say, so he wants to run a CT scan. What do you think? And I go, remember, okay, I'm not an MD, and I can't tell you to run that scan or to not run that scan. Oh, no, 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 I understand that. But, but you know, you've helped save my life, and I want your opinion. What do you think? And I go, well, you know that you're getting much better. 
He's amazed, or she's amazed, a couple of them have had women oncologists, that you're getting much better. Every single monitor that they have shows you going in the opposite direction of what they thought was going to happen. They thought maybe they were going to slow it down. Instead, you're getting better and better and better. And you have to know that their research, because it's not my research, their research shows every time you get a CT scan, the amount of radiation that you're getting is increasing your risk of future cancers. So I don't personally like diagnostic testing that is harmful. That doesn't mean it might not have a place and there might not be lots of times you need it. So, for example, and this really infuriates me, the uh, positon emission tomograph, the PET scan, PET scan, that's a scan which should have proven to every single oncologist in the world that cancer cells love sugar and the last thing you would ever want to do is tell your your patient don't care about what you eat. You should tell them, don't eat sugar, don't eat starch, don't drink alcohol, it turns to sugar. Uh, Because that's the way the PET scan works. You inject radioactive sugar and the tumors gobble it up and they glow on the tomograph machine and that's how they can see where they are. But for some reason, there's a disconnect there. They, They use the PET and they still don't understand that. But I mean, I've had people where somebody had a tumor and you know they saw it maybe on a sonogram or something and they decided to go in after they had done a, uh, a biopsy, and again, I don't like biopsies. That's another question if you want to go over it. They, after a biopsy, they decided to go in and remove the tumor. And I said, why aren't they doing a PET scan? Oh, no, they don't need a PET scan. They already know where it is. And I have patients where they opened the person up and saw dozens of additional tumors in the area that they didn't know were there. And so they closed them back up after doing nothing and said, we can't do anything here. There's way, way too much. You know, If we'd known this, we wouldn't have done the surgery. So they cut, they cut their skin, they give them antibiotic, they give them antiseptic, they give them painkillers you know, for the surgery. The body doesn't like any of that. And they didn't do anything good at all. If they had run the PET scan, they would have seen some of those other tumors and they wouldn't have opened the person up. So in that case, the PET scan would have been beneficial. It would have prevented a surgery that shouldn't have happened. So, you know, we got give and take everywhere, even though I hate PET scans because you're injecting radiation, radiation, radioactive sugar. Right. Yeah, I know from personal experience with, uh, you know, with my mom at the infusion center for chemo, you know, two years ago, they were giving her like donuts and ice cream and all this and right i told her yep. don't have it and they're like oh it's fine you know so yeah they just how, how can how can they believe that when they know the principles of the pet scan how can they believe that total ignorance unbelievable yeah, ignorance. well for ignorance yeah i agree well you, so you you mentioned biopsies a few times i've heard from one or two other people that uh, i guess a biopsy may be able to i guess well i guess they could uh, tear off cells from a tumor and then entrain them in surrounding tissue and start metastases? Or what, what happens with biopsies? Why are they uh, a problem potentially? Well, as poorly as the body with cancer was able to do its job, otherwise it, the body wouldn't have cancer. Uh, nonetheless, it does its best to ward off the cancer, to surround it, to make it so that it's, it's you know, not going to spread. And you know, it, it obviously is not successful, but it does a little of that. When you do a biopsy, you are cutting into that and whether you're cutting into it with a scalpel or whether you're going into it with a needle to you know, pull some out, uh, and regardless of whether the needle that you have has a little cap that goes over the end to hold it, that entire scalpel or needle 
was going into a tumor, which is malignant, and it now has little seed cells around it on the outside of, again, the scalpel, the needle, whatever, which you are seeding the tissue with as you remove it. And so I've had enough oncologists, and these were brave people, because you know if they, if they were to say that, obviously, I was at holistic cancer conferences, and they do exist, but these are oncologists that told us they would never do a biopsy if it was on one of their, 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 their own siblings, you know, their own parents, anybody in their family. They would never recommend it because, and they've all said this to them, they've, they've all said, because we have seen over and over again that those people who had a lump removed and never had a biopsy done, the lump was analyzed in the pathology lab after it was removed. There was no pre-biopsy done. Those people are much less likely to get metastatic cancer number of years later than the ones that had the biopsy. Problem is that we have something in the United States, it's probably in other countries, I don't know those countries, I don't practice there, called standard of care. And standard of care says they're supposed to do something in a specific order. And you know, if they're going to be getting paid uh, by the insurance company and everything, you're supposed to do something the way they want to. Well, the first thing is whatever labs they've done that make them believe somebody may have cancer. And the second thing is to look for the tumor itself without going into the body. And that's either a CT scan or PET scan, or oh, that's usually later, or an MRI, uh, or a sonogram, uh, or a mammogram, which of course have been proven, the mammograms in two huge studies, one in cancer, one in the United States, and the other either in Canada or the UK, were proved to increase cancer rates. And the NIH, uh, who I believe did the US one, stopped recommending mammograms to anybody that wasn't at least 50 years old, because if you get one every year, you keep on irradiating the same area over and over again. Uh, and so you're increasing the risk of cancer in that area, and they stopped recommending it. The cancer industry threw a fit and said, you can't do that. We make billions of dollars with it. No, we have to do that. And with no change in the result of their research, they backpedaled and changed it because of politics. But you know, after having a number of different oncologists at the conference I attend say that they would never recommend a biopsy if it was on somebody they loved, I started telling people that. It wasn't one oncologist, it was quite a number. But standard of care says, first you do this, then you do this. Okay, now we do a biopsy to make sure it's malignant before we're going to do the surgery. So if you're going to try and find an oncologist somewhere that is willing to possibly hurt his or her license, by going in and removing the tumor and analyzing it in the pathology lab because you have told them, look, I will sign whatever releases you want. I don't want a biopsy. Take the damn tumor out, and if you tell me afterwards it wasn't malignant, okay, fine. But if it was malignant, I benefited by you not cutting into it first. You may not be able to find such an oncologist because they'll say, I can't do that. We have to do the wow. biopsy how much, I mean, is there, what kind of data is there? Like how much does it increase the, uh, the likelihood of metastatic cancer? There is itself. no data because they will not do the research. They do not want that published. So these are right. all oncologists that have been in business for a long time that have treated hundreds or thousands of people that have seen this happen, that have told us at conferences, and nothing will be published. But how do they know? I mean, you know, I guess well, I guess people would dismiss it as anecdotal, but there's a, just a huge abundance of anecdotal information, and that's enough. They know because of the numbers of patients that have had cancer come back versus the number that had had biopsies, versus the much fewer number that had the cancer come back that hadn't had a biopsy. Anecdotal is a dirty word. Anecdotal is a very, very dirty word, and the public doesn't understand what anecdotal means. So, for example, it's anecdotal that if you jump, jump out of a, a plane without a parachute, that you're going to die, because it's never been double-blind research. It's yeah, anecdotal. Just like, uh, 
you know, eating food and drinking to keep you alive has never been researched either. Right. It's, it's anecdotal that prunes or prune juice uh, will help you with constipation. Everybody knows that, including the doctors, but there's no double-blind study on it. There was a group in, uh, I forget where they were in Europe, it might have been the UK, that just as a lark, it was a water company, a new water company, a bottle of water, that wanted to put on their bottles, maybe used in the treatment of dehydration, just as a sort of a joke. The European version of our FDA said, you can't do that. There's no research that proves that, or that oral water oh can reduce dehydration. We only know that for, for intravenous fluids. So they wouldn't let them. So, so anecdotal, people don't understand that if, if a thousand doctors try something because they heard about it from this holistic guy who said, you, right, you really ought to try this. If a thousand doctors tried this with, let's say, 50 patients each, whatever it is that I'm, I'm not even giving you a specific example, just a thousand doctors trying something with 50 patients each and found that with almost all the patients, whatever this thing that they learned they should try that was harmless worked. But there's no double-blind, placebo-controlled published research. It's anecdotal because anecdote just means that it wasn't published double-blind research. And the public doesn't understand that anecdotal does not mean that something isn't fantastic. Okay. Well, well said. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. what. How many patients do you think, you know, ballpark that you've worked with that had uh, cancer that you were able to positively affect them? Is that hundreds, thousands? Like, what's your guess over the 25 years? God, if I had a guess, and it's just it's just a total guess, because after my house burned down the wildfires in 2007, I lost all my initial records, so I couldn't even go back and take a look. It's got to be a couple hundred. I, I laugh. Actually, it's not. I don't really laugh. I almost cry. I'll be at a conference, and there'll be a doctor, and I don't care what he or she is a doctor of. It's irrelevant. And they'll say, well, you know, I mean, I've seen maybe uh, 20,000 patients in the last 15 years. Uh, you know, I usually see about uh, 30, 30 to 35 a day. And I'm sitting listening to all of the different presenters, and I'm listening to this doctor who works an eight-hour day in a hospital. You know, it's not a private practice. And he just got through telling me, that he sees an average of 35 to 40 patients a day. And I go, okay, so let's say he takes a half an hour lunch because he's so busy and he doesn't feel like he needs food. So he works a seven and a half hour day and he works a seven and a half hour day and he's seeing 35 to 40 patients a day. So in other words, he doesn't have enough, he doesn't give each patient enough time to learn crap from that patient. And so when people will ask me how many of this or that I've treated, and I'll give them a, a, an estimated number and they'll say, is that all? I'll go, you don't understand the way I work, okay? My initial consultation for the first time with a new patient lasts between three and a half and five hours. Oh, wow. that, that's the amount of time it takes me to go over everything I need to go over with them. Now, that doesn't mean that they got three and a half to five hours worth of David Getoff for their initial consultation because they also had to watch a four-hour healthy eating video that I sent to them because I don't have another four hours to add to that three and a half to five or they're going to be here a day and a half. So they got an additional four hours of me going over all the eating principles that they can then ask me about. So that means an initial consultation, somebody's getting seven, eight, nine hours of my time. So if I have an initial consultation during one of my days, then I might have another one or two people coming in for you know, an hour or so each for their next visit. But I'm not even going to have two consultations in a day. I can't fit them unless it's a dual consultation where it's a couple. And so some of the stuff is an overlap. And so I can fit in two and it's a seven hour consultation. So I don't see as many people as these people that are doing revolving door uh, medicine. Yeah, and they're probably seeing them for like five minutes and half that time is that staring at the computer, just typing stuff in. And yeah, it's just like a cursory 
oh yeah okay we'll just do this amazing it's totally amazing yeah i remember um i had thyroid cancer four years ago and when it came to the nuclear medicine part of it that's what they call it uh you know i asked the doctor questions and she's like i don't know that's not my specialty and i said <laughs> well i, I want to know so i i sought out myself a nuclear medicine person to to get answers because sure she had none you know which was crazy that's right they don't yeah. know and 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 one of one of the questions that is often asked of an oncologist is what caused my cancer. Okay. And and it's a simple question. I mean, figure somebody has cancer and they they would like to know what caused my cancer. They say what caused right. my cancer. The doctor will then make a statement that bothers me a lot. And this statement has been made millions and millions of times probably all over the planet Earth. It doesn't matter what country you're in. We don't know what causes cancer. That's the answer. And when I teach my 10-week course in attaining optimal health, I go over what I'm about to say now. And I say, so the doctor says we don't know what causes cancer. And what I would say if I was lecturing at a cancer conference, which I have done, holistic ones obviously, is I would say, how many people here, just raise your hand if you know what the word carcinogenic means. And of course, obviously, everybody's hand goes right up because carcinogenic means cancer causing. Okay. okay, good. So you all know what carcinogenic means. Now, raise your hand if you can think of any substance whatsoever that the manufacturer of that substance tells you that their research shows it's carcinogenic. I'm not going to ask you to name it or whatever. Just if you've got, if you can think of at least one substance that you know is carcinogenic because the manufacturer says so, raise your hand. Everybody's hand goes right back up again. Now, if I went through and asked, let's say, 300 doctors that had their hands up, what were you thinking of? One person would say chlorine. One person would say fluoride. One person would say lead. One person would say bleach. Uh, one person would say, they would name a pesticide, you know, malathion, DDT. One person would say Roundup. But basically, lots. And then I will say, if you ever want to take some time to do something that may be a little depressing, grab your book that lists every currently available prescription drug called the Physician's Desk Reference, we abbreviated PDR, and open it anywhere, thousands of pages. Open it anywhere. It doesn't matter where you open it. Just open it anywhere and look at the next 25 drugs and look at all the things it says about those drugs. And I, there are two things I want you to look at specifically. I want you to look in the area that says mode of action, and I want you to look at the area that says tetragenicity and carcinogenicity. In other words, in other words does it screw up your, uh, your DNA, and is it cancer-causing? And take a look out of 50 of them, how many of them the manufacturer tells you it's cancer-causing, or the manufacturer tells you it screws up your DNA, and take a look at how many of the 50 of them under mode of action, it says unknown. Because they did all this research to prove that it did something to the acceptance of the FDA to get it published, but they don't have a clue why or how. Okay. So when a doctor says we don't know what causes cancer, that's a, an extremely ignorant answer. I mean, basically what the doctor should say is there are thousands and thousands of chemicals that are actually listed by the companies that manufacture them as causing cancer. But I wouldn't be able to tell you which one or hundred of them cause yours. That's an honest answer. What, what's the typical reaction when you tell people that? Are they just silent or what happens? No, most of them say that makes a lot of sense. You know, they, they go, so I mean, all, all of the, the, the substances that you've taught me to change, I'm now using a different shampoo, a different soap, a different toothpaste, a different body lotion, uh, you know, all those different things. I'm using different cleansers around the house to clean the floors. I mean, all of those things that I've been exposed to, all of those things hurt my immune system. And so how many of those 
were part of the reason I now have cancer, in addition to the bad food I was eating, the pesticide residues, herbicide residues, uh, the, the lack of vitamins and minerals because the doctors are taught that you don't need any extras in your food, even though there's no research study that's ever validated that. I mean, there's so many different things. And now, of course, we have, I don't know where this term ever came from, the new elephant in the room. Uh, some people are, are calling it uh, cigarettes. They're saying that uh, cell phones are the new cigarettes. And I go, well, that's, you're, 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 you're throwing out the rest of the EMFs. You should say electric fields are the new cigarettes because we don't know whether the reason that somebody can't get pregnant because either the man's sperm or the woman's ovaries or whatever are being so badly affected by EMFs, we have no idea whether or not it's because of their Wi-Fi predominantly or whether it's because of their cordless phones predominantly or whether it's because the, uh, they, they keep a cell phone on their waist or in their pocket and they're nuking their, uh, uh, their testes all day, which has been proven. I mean, that's been published, you know, what it does to, the, uh, to the, the, the sperm's motility. We don't know whether it's one of those or whether it's all three of those. I have no idea. I mean, everything comes together. So what, uh, I don't know, what do you see as the future of, uh, of cancer research? Just more of the same? Like, if you, you know, if we go five years out or 50 years out, what do you see? I see more of the same. I see more of most cancers. I see them continuing, even though it's down the wrong, uh, the wrong pike. I see them continuing to try and find genetic stuff. I see them continuing to look for ways to, you know, change or, or alter a gene, you know, in a, in, a, uh, in a medical way as opposed to in an environmental way. So, for example, there was a study done uh, where they split uh, two groups in half and one group ate pasta made from wheat and potato flour, and the other group ate pasta made from barley and I forget what other grain. And they followed them for a while, uh, doing gene testing on them. And they found that the group that was eating the pasta that was made from what most pasta is made from, which of course is wheat, the genes that tell you that you are more likely to get diabetes uh, were turned more and more on and the group that ate the other pasta where there was no wheat in it, there was barley instead, the genes were turned more and more off. So that's the field of epigenetics, which is the way that our genes are affected by our diet and lifestyle. That's where they should be looking, but that's not treatment. You know, we're, we're part of the problem. The part of the problem is somebody doesn't want to change anything. When they get sick, they'll go to the doctor. And that's a problem because the best way to cure our cancer epidemic is to do all the things that will greatly reduce the number of people that get cancer, not to try to get a better treatment. And that's not being looked at. I actually don't think it's going to get any better. I think they're going to keep on spending money in both places. You know, if somebody asks me to give money for the run for the cure or something like that, I would never do that because they're putting money in all the wrong places. I mean, I have, I have people that I've met at conferences that are holistic scientists doing work on helping to reverse cancers in people in the same way that I try to do that, same, same different thing. And when they get really, really good results with a bunch of people, they will send in some clinical stuff they've done, for example, to the Susan B. Komen Foundation. And then they don't get an answer, they send it in again. And then they don't get an answer, they send in return receipt requested certified mail. And they still don't get an answer because none of these organizations want to cure cancer. Run for the cure, bull. Try to find a cure, malarkey. There's no money in cure. There's only money in treatment and management. And so they don't care. And so it's not going to happen. And I had one woman in my office about five years ago. And uh, I said, so what does your husband think 
about the fact that we've reversed your diabetes. Your doctor has now said, wow, I've never seen this. You don't have diabetes anymore. I just ran the test. And, and you've, you've lost a whole bunch of weight, and all of your blood values are going in the right direction. Most of the ones that weren't normal are now normal, and the others are going that way. What does your husband say as you tell him these results you're getting from your doctor because of working with me? And uh, she said, you know, I actually asked him that because I wanted him to come see you. And she said, he, he looked at me. He said, honey, I don't do prevention, okay? It's very simple. I don't do prevention. If I get sick, I will go to our doctor. And so I said, do me a favor. Do me a favor, but please make sure you tell him that this is not from you. I don't want the two of you to get into an argument. I want you to tell him that you told me what you just told me, that he said, I don't do prevention. If I get sick, I'll go to the doctor. And that Mr. Getoff said, actually, he doesn't realize it, but that was, uh, that was not true. He does prevention. He does prevention multiple times a year. And I feel very sorry for him that he believes that your automobiles are more important than your bodies because there is nothing that goes wrong in any car to make you change your oil. Changing your oil is 100% prevention because all the dirt that gets in there, if you don't change it for fresh, you are greatly reducing the life of your car. It's never because something happened. You are changing your oil 100% prevention. So tell him he does prevention all the time, and I'm sad that he cares more about the car. She said, thank you. I like that. And she did. The next time she came in for her next visit a few months later, I said, did you tell him? She said, I did. And what did he say? He said, huh. He said, get off is right. Yeah, I guess I must care more about the car because you're right. That is prevention. That's sad. Oh, and he still didn't do anything from there. Nope. Well, all right. Well, David, for people that are listening that uh, want to get your help, I know you are you know, you have limited time and, and ability and all that, but are you able to help people around the country or only in your state, in California, or where, where can people get help from you? Well, I mean, I do help people around the country and around the world. I, I have people, uh, I've had patients fly in to see me from France, Italy, Greece, the United Kingdom, a couple of islands that I've never heard of. I, I generally prefer the first visit after they filled out all my forms, sent me whatever labs they have, if they have any, have watched my four-hour video, prefer to make the first visit in person. That's why I say people have flown in to see me from around the world. I will occasionally work with somebody that I don't meet. The problem that I have, if there aren't in the United States, is that some of the supplements I use uh, are very specific. You know, it's not just, you know, somebody will say vitamin C or, or magnesium or, or liver, liver, liver support, but there, there are very big differences between those. And although I can ship something anywhere in the United States, shipping things to other countries is so difficult, I won't do it anymore. It's too hard. I've had, you know, stuff confiscated at different borders. Canada is the only country that I will still ship things to. But if somebody goes to my website, which is real easy, you know, David, D-A-V-I-D, get off, G-E-T-O-F-F, get off, davidgetoff.com, it'll redirect them to the website. And what I tell them to do is a bunch of words up on top, you know, before they scroll down anywhere, and click on the area that says initial consultation. And there are two things that pop up. You know, one is an audio of me going over, you know, what this initial consultation is, what you're going to have to do, what I do, et cetera, et cetera. And then below that is a whole bunch of text I wrote, which is not a duplication. This is additional information. And so I tell people, if you're interested in working with me, go there, go to the initial consultation area, listen to the audio, read all the text. And if after doing that, you know, you'd like to work with me, you call me up, the phone number's there. Um, you say, I, I went to your website, to the initial consultation area, I looked, I read, I listened, whatever, and please call me back, uh, I'd like to talk to you. And then we, we talk and decide whether or not they're going to fly in if they're in the U.S. or even in other countries, uh, or whether they'll be one of the tiny numbers of people that I've never met. But yeah, you know, the, 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 biggest, the biggest issue 
I have is a combination of those people that don't want to make all the changes they have to make. You know, somebody says, well, yeah, you know, I mean, if you can give me some some healthy pills instead of the doctor's pills, no, 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 no. You're going to have to change your diet. You're going to have to do all sorts of different things in addition to taking the different pills. That's number one. Uh, some people can't afford it, you know, so that, that's another thing, which I can't do anything about. And the other is time. So if somebody calls me up and says, I've been to the oncologist and I just found out I have stage four metastatic cancer and they've given me four months to live. And they're not supposed to do that anymore, actually, because you can program death. A couple of studies that were done on that a number of decades ago. You mean you can program death, the person will tend to die when you say they will? Yes, that's what, that's what they found. They followed a whole bunch of people for a number of, uh, number of different years, and they found that people were dying within the parameters of what their doctor had told them on the initial consultation. And they, they said, you have to stop doing that. Give them a range. If somebody says, how long do I have? Don't say you know, about three months because too many people are going to die at three months. You know, what you should say is, well, you know, I don't know. There are too many variables. Two months, three months, four months, six months, a year. I mean, I, I don't know. That's a proper answer. But when somebody calls me up and says, I've been given, let's say, two to four months to live, and I can't see them for two months, it feels bad. Because if they want to work with me, then I'm going to do some things I don't normally do except with cancer. And that is, I'm going to certainly send out my questionnaire forms. I'm going to send out the DVD that they have to watch so they can start making diet changes. And I'm probably going to send out kidney support, liver support, uh, multivitamin, and a couple other different things so they can get started on things immediately while they're waiting, let's say, the couple of months before they can get into see me. Because otherwise, I, I, we don't have a chance. Well, very good. Well, David, thank you for coming on the uh, podcast for a second time. It's always good to talk to you, and, and I appreciate what you do. You are very welcome, and I love what I do because there's, there's, there's nothing that's more fun than having uh, the feedback from people thanking me for the ways in which I've helped them and their family. So I, I love what I do. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.